Good morning. It's Tuesday, January 18th. I'm Duarte Geraldino. And I'm Shamita Basu. This is Apple News Today. Each morning, hear about some of the most fascinating stories in the news and how the world's best journalists are covering them. In this year's midterms, you're going to hear candidates discuss the economy, the pandemic, and maybe even cryptocurrency. It's really evolving into a bona fide political issue here in the United States. That's Ben Schreckinger. He's a reporter with Politico. He also invests in cryptocurrency himself. He's been tracking how more and more politicians in both parties are voicing their support for cryptocurrency. The mayors of Miami and New York have embraced crypto and gotten some positive attention for it. In Ohio, a pro-Trump Senate candidate promised to make the state pro-Bitcoin. In Florida, a Democrat running for governor is accepting donations in cryptocurrency. Schreckinger also looks at how digital currency investors are using their wealth to influence politics. Last year, the second largest individual donor to Biden's presidential campaign was a 29-year-old cryptocurrency entrepreneur. What you're seeing in 2022 is that people involved in cryptocurrency, people who've made a lot of money off of it, are getting more organized and more intentional about their political giving. They are crowdsourcing ideas on Twitter of who are the pro-crypto candidates that we should be donating to and who are the anti-crypto candidates who we should be giving to their opponents. Crypto also has its critics in both parties. Senator Elizabeth Warren has called for more regulation. And some Democrats focus on how Bitcoin mining can damage the environment with its intense energy use. On the right, Donald Trump has called Bitcoin a scam, and he also wants strict regulation. One Washington insider who advises crypto clients says Bitcoin seems like a niche issue in the midterm elections. But by 2024, especially for Republicans, you'll be hearing even more candidates talking about cryptocurrency on the presidential campaign trail. Most of us know the story of Anne Frank. Her diary is one of the best historical accounts of the Nazi persecution of Jewish people. Her family spent nearly two years hiding in a secret part of an Amsterdam warehouse. That is, until the Nazis discovered them and took them to concentration camps. Anne Frank was 15 when she died at the camp. Her diary is known around the world. For more than 75 years, there's been an unanswered question, though. Who told authorities where Anne Frank and her family were hiding? For me, it was really important to investigate what makes us uh, uh, give up on each other. The area where Anne Frank lived is very normal, and it's a very warm area with the butcher and the doctor and the policeman. They worked together. They loved each other. They lived together. And suddenly, people start to betray on each other. How could that happen? That's Thijs Bayens, a Dutch filmmaker on 60 Minutes. He was part of a team that looked into this question. It's been investigated a few times before, but never definitively solved. This time, they would use modern technology, including AI, to see if they could solve this decades-long mystery. The team was led by retired FBI agent Vincent Pankok. He visited the place where the Franks hid with 60 Minutes. It is extraordinary. When we first started the case, one of the theories that was out there is that the raid may have been caused by somebody in the immediate area seeing something, hearing something, and reporting it. So therefore, we tracked and identified every resident that lived 
in this block and adjacent streets. After six years investigating, this team came to focus on one suspect, Arnold Vandenberg. He was a prominent member of Amsterdam's Jewish community, but the Nazis, they never deported him. This team believes Vandenberg may have betrayed the Franks to save his own family. The investigators also learned that Anne Frank's father knew about Vandenberg. Otto Frank was the only member of the family to survive the war. He received a note saying Vandenberg betrayed his family. But Otto Frank never discussed it publicly. The team thinks he might have worried that accusing a Jewish person of betrayal might have stoked anti-Semitism. The team emphasizes that even if Vandenberg gave up information about the Franks, it was ultimately the Nazis who were responsible for their deaths. The investigators say they can't be sure he was the one since the evidence is circumstantial. Their complete findings are out in a new book called The Betrayal of Anne Frank. There's a lot of work being done to try to document how the pandemic is affecting different parts of our society. One study caught our eye. It looks at how the pandemic was enormously difficult for scientists and especially women. This may affect future innovations, which could help us all live longer and better lives. A group of researchers surveyed hundreds of scientists, people who work in biology, engineering, biochemistry, and they shared these results in The Washington Post. Now, for scientists... COVID has meant important research was brought to a halt, data was lost, travel restrictions got in the way of collaboration. And the survey also found the pandemic was especially hard on women scientists. They were far more likely than men to have work disruptions because of unexpected childcare responsibilities. That tracks with other studies which show that women scientists had less time to do research and submitted fewer scientific papers compared to before the pandemic. Now, aside from gender, younger scientists were more likely to report pandemic problems than their older colleagues. And taken all together, this research raises concerns about the future of science. If promising women and young people are held back, the pool of scientific talent won't be as strong. Important breakthroughs might never be discovered. The researchers behind this study... They have ideas for improvement. They want to see support for affordable childcare, funding for early career women researchers, and changes to how universities deal with tenure. As they point out, many of the problems, well, they predate the pandemic. So they're hopeful science will use the clarity that the pandemic is providing to make the system work better for everyone. It's simple, it's catchy. Once you hear it, you're gonna be humming it all day. And kids never seem to get tired of it. You know what song I'm talking about. We're going to spare you the rest of that catchy tune, you know. Okay, I'm going to stop. Now, there's a lot to love and dislike about Baby Shark, but no one can dispute its popularity. The song recently became the first video ever to surpass 10 billion views on YouTube. Billion! (laughs) The Wall Street Journal looks at the Baby Shark phenomenon. Apparently, Baby Shark started as a camp song, but it became a global hit when a South Korean company turned it into a music video back in 2016. There's since been a Nickelodeon show and a movie, Shemita. Yeah, so Dorote, you have kids. I'm guessing you've heard the song a million times. You want to take a guess at how many times the word do is sung? 
I just say it enough times to quiet my kids, so I don't know. How many? <laughs> you didn't go counting? Okay, it's sung 162 times. <laughs> There's only 18 <laughs> words in the whole song, and that's kind of the point. You know, one professor of music education pointed out to the journal, children love the song for the same reason that parents hate it, the repetition. You know, it's easy for kids to figure out the lyrics and the pattern in countries all over the world. You can find all these stories and more in the Apple News app. And when you're in the app, keep listening to hear narrated articles from our News Plus partners. We'll talk with you again tomorrow.